It was an ugly city. The fine old buildings had been pulled down over the years. And they'd been replaced by huge square concrete monstrosities. They were designed for function and not good look. So by the time I went there, they were getting tatty and ragged around the edges. And I wondered just how functional they were now. It was a depressing place. But then just a few years ago, an architect was appointed to the city to design a new civic center in the heart of the city. In the middle of all that ugliness, they couldn't afford to pull everything down. But they could just afford, they reckoned, to begin the process of making the city once more the most beautiful place the old pictures showed it had been. The architect was not a young man, but he had cherished this sort of opportunity all his life. He went to work on the design, and some while later, while the, while the preparations were complete, he saw the foundations laid. He was then taken ill, and unable to carry on his work on the project, but he still cared passionately about it and gave detailed instructions to his colleagues as to how it was all to proceed. After all, he said to them, when people think of me, I want them to think of this beautiful building. You've got to make it stand out like a lighthouse in a dark storm, showing people that there is such a thing as beauty, even if everything else around is all ugliness. That will be my reward. Paul, in this passage, is like the architect. He's looking forward once more to the day of the Messiah, the day when God will bring the whole cosmos to justice and peace through the return of Jesus Christ. He doesn't know whether he will still be alive to see that day. But he's designed a building that if the builders keep working at it the way he showed them, it will stand out as a thing of beauty in a world of ugliness. The sign of what God will eventually do for the whole city. Today's society has not only accepted the X factor, but the blame factor. Only too often the media offers us the opportunity to become wealthier by claiming for accidents at work, school, or even on the streets that we walk on. And many are unwilling to take on the responsibility of their own actions and blame the government, the environment, employers even, and I'd better not do that. Often we blame parents, husbands, wives, children. We often think that this is something new. But you might even be ahead of me by thinking, no, this goes right back to Genesis. When Adam sinned. But he didn't take responsibility for his actions. He blamed his wife, Eve. But it doesn't end there because he blamed the serpent. You know, we can wrap it up in any box. But ultimately, we are accountable 
we are responsible for our own actions, our own lives, and no one else. Verses 12 to 13 could be titled, Our Responsibility for Our Own Life. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have obeyed not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Paul links this section with the preceding, therefore, because if Jesus had set the example of obedience in working out his responsibility, we too are expected to work out our own salvation. But that is really the only appropriate response to Jesus of his sacrifice on our behalf. It is said that in the New Testament that salvation is possibly the most important word. But without wanting to water it down, perhaps a more up-to-date word would be freedom. To be saved by Jesus Christ is to be set free. Jesus sets us free from Sin in any disguise, which may be guilt, addictions, or even death. In setting us free, he allows us to know God, to love others, and to be our true selves that he has meant us to be. Salvation, freedom, and responsibility work together as a hand in a glove. George Bernard Shaw, the late Irish dramatist, once wrote, Liberty means responsibility. And that is why most men read it. We have free will. Therefore, we are responsible for our own actions. As Christians, we enjoy a greater freedom, the glorious freedom of the children of God. But it comes with a greater responsibility. So looking at verse 12, Paul tells us to work out our freedom. You see, unlike the Jehovah Witnesses, who feel they must work for their freedom, we are to see it as a possession to be explored and enjoyed. As a school teacher asks a class how to work out a mathematical problem, it needs to be unraveled, or same perhaps, the counsel of a newly married couple to work out their marriage to achieve a lifetime of enjoyment, development, and discovery. If we are to respond to God's call, walking daily along the path, we need to work out the field of our Christian service. Every one of us has a different calling, a different ministry. I'm going to do a Joseph. Look around the church. See who's there. Go on. Have a look. They're not that ugly or that bad. Each one of us, God has given us a gift. Are you going to use it? Are you using it? Perhaps you feel you've yet to discover your gift. Perhaps you think you haven't got one. 
let me assure you that God has given you personally gifts for his service. All we must do is discover them and use them. When I was at Bible College, one of my theological essays was, who has been the most Christ-like person in your life? I wonder if you, like me, could hardly think of anyone. And I've shared some of this before. I suddenly thought of Fred. He was an American. A bit younger than me. He was on a two-year assignment at Boscombe Down. He took his responsibility as a Christian seriously, as so should we. You couldn't see but Christ oh, working out through him. At work or player, or especially in the church, he would easily talk about Jesus. And it was obvious that he had worked out his freedom for God's glory. I cried the day he left. I went to see him and his family stood in their driveway, Martlesham Road, by the garage. I don't think I've cried over anyone else that's left here before. But Fred is a special person. But I know he's serving God with his constant smile and servant heart. We are all reminded that we are to work out our freedom with fear and trembling. Such is the importance that it should not be taken lightly. For we risk offending God and wasting our lives. Some might say that the 20 years I fought God's call to the ministry could be considered a wasted life. Others might concede the knowledge that I've gained 20 more years of worldly experience to equip me for it. I know what I feel. Alan Redpath, the Christian writer and preacher, was once a chartered accountant. For six years he was on the staff of ICI. In his spare time he played rugby for Northumberland County. He had given his life to God, but he had other gods too. He went to church, but his Christianity was just like one box in his life. One day, a friend of his said, You know, it is possible to have a saved soul but a wasted life. He tried to ignore it, but the words kept ringing in his ears like a needle caught in a groove or a modern translation of CD sticking. Saved soul, wasted life. Every tune on the radio seemed to be playing the same tune. Saved soul, wasted life. On Saturday, he played rugby. The words were still ringing in his ears. On the train, after the match, the wheels of the train kept churning and saying, Save soul, wasted life. Eventually, he gave in and said, Lord, you can have all of my life. Through him, many came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And their lives had changed through his ministry. Now, for most of us here, it won't be full-time Christian ministry, such as standing here. But it will be full-time Christian ministry in the office, in the shop, in the hospital, in the house, in the school. Each one of us has a responsibility before God to work out 
what he or she is called to do, and then to do it for God's glory. Did you notice? We are to work out our salvation because it is God who works in us. Our freedom is a gift from God. And even our attempts to become obedient, responsible, sensitive believers, we need his help and allow the Holy Spirit to work in us in all that we do. No doubt any gardener here would say the growth comes from God, but the gardener has a vital role to play. God's desire to work in us includes our wills in the hope of reaching his purpose. If we surrender to his will, he will not only give us the desire to do whatever he calls us to do, he will give us the ability to do it. It may not be easy, but remember it is God who works in us. The first part was responsibility for our own lives. The second part could be our responsibility to society. Now in the New Testament, there is very little to say about society's responsibility to us. But more is about responsibility for those around us. Verse 15 says, we live in a crooked and depraved generation. The word crooked suggests that it is warped in its activity. And the word for depraved suggests that it is distorted in its values. Little seems to have changed from Paul's day to ours. Listen to these two descriptions of young people in society. I see no hope for the future of our people if they are dependent on the frivolous youth of today. For certainly all youth are reckless beyond words. When I was young, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders. But the present youth are exceedingly impatient of restraint. Sound familiar? How recent do you think that was said? It was taken from Hesiod, a Greek poet of the 8th century BC. That was a little while ago. What about this one? The children now live in luxury. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in the place of exercise. Children are tyrants, not the servants of their household. They no longer rise when their elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, eat up delicacies at the table, cross their legs and tyrannize their teachers. Is that more recent? 469 to 399 BC. Socrates. Little has changed. But let me reassure you and some parents here today. As Christians, we are called to live lives noticeably different from those around us. And if that was not difficult enough, we are to do it without complaining and arguing. The original Greek word for arguing means intellectual rebellion from God, while complaining translates as a more moral uh, rebellion against God. 
in the Greek pick. It is a onomatopoeic word, with the closest English translation being murmuring or grumbling. The same words used in Exodus. The people of Israel who had received many blessings, and yet days later were running and murmuring, as we heard. Where's the water? I wonder, do you know of any Christians who murmur or grumble? Perhaps not in church on a Sunday, but outside where it is for your ears only. But the sermon went on too long, or there should have been this point. I don't need to go on. You know what I'm saying. But beware. This is the beginning of a slippery slope. Next time you're in the presence of someone who grumbles, why not stop them in midpoint and say, why don't you praise God instead? Our lives are meant to be blameless. Living a life which no one can fault. We are meant to be a sharp contrast to those in the world. We are to shine like stars in the universe. What an incredible image Paul gives us here. Next time there is a clear blue sky. And as you see the stars twinkling, remembering, remember, that is what we are to be. Giving light to the good news of Jesus, the dark world around us. This is the message we have. And it is our responsibility to share it with the world. But it is also our privilege. So the third point could be entitled, Our Responsibility to the Church. Did you notice how seriously Paul takes his own responsibilities? His care and his concern for the Christians at Philippi. For an example to us as to how we should view our responsibilities towards the members of ABC or other fellow Christians of other denominations and Christian friends. As with most examples in Scripture, the illustration given is relevant to the situation. Here, Paul uses two. The first of being an athlete. Verse 16 tells us that he wants to boast on the day of Christ that he did not run or labor for nothing. The original word for labor links to the word running and refers to the training of an athlete. In the Greek world, there were also the Isthmian Games at Corinth, the Pan-Ionian Games at Ephesus, as well as the Olympic Games that we all know. And you can imagine the rigorous training that was needed for these games. Paul saw his efforts on behalf of the Philippians in these terms, to run and to labor on their behalf, he needed to be in peak condition. Otherwise, his efforts would have been wasted. It's the same for us when attempts to nurture a new Christian come to nothing if they fall away. And disappointment occurs, but no greater joy is found in seeing the fruit of our labors and those who grow in love and service the Lord. The second image used is a bit stronger. 
It is one of sacrifice. He speaks of being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. Now this is more difficult to understand, but it is commonly felt that it is an image of a heathen sacrifice. And as Paul is writing to converted heathens, he uses a picture which is familiar. The drink offering was the cup of wine poured out as a sacrifice to the gods, accompanying a larger sacrifice. A small thing which made a major sacrifice complete. As Paul regarded their faith and priestly service of the Philippians in their sacrifice to God, it is the faith and good deeds which rise out of the faith. And it's such his love for them that he is prepared to pour out his life before God for their sake, even if that meant death. Verse 18 is a powerful verse. As Paul is asking them to be glad and rejoice with him should it happen. Earlier I mentioned about bread. On Christmas we were watching television. And you know, there's nothing to watch on 999 channels, is there? All of a sudden Anna said, that looks like bread. So we scrolled back to see. Yes, it was bread. He'd been asked by the BBC to construct an aeroplane powered by man. Alongside him was David Cameron of Cameron Balloons and many other well-known people. Fred hadn't told anything about this. And when confronted, he spoke very lightly of it. When he left Amesbury, to return to the state, he was promoted to a commander of the Navy. If there is a message I want to share with you today, it is this. Ministry is the pouring out of ourselves for others. Are you prepared to pour out God's love inside you to a friend or a neighbor? Are you able to challenge a fellow believer who criticizes another person? Are you willing to encourage a new believer, with the passion Paul had. Know this, if you want to use the gifting he has already given you, look back at verse 13. It says, For it is God who works in you. You know what? You couldn't be in better hands. 